Hey everybody, this is Mike Joseph, host of the Detoxicity Podcast. Before we begin this week's episode, I want to remind you, please subscribe, rate, and comment on this podcast wherever you're listening to it. You can find me on Instagram at DetoxPodGuy and on Twitter at TizMikeJoseph. Reach out via DM with comments, or if you know someone who'd be good to feature on an episode, or if you yourself would like to be interviewed, you can also email me for that. I am at DetoxPod at gmail.com. Finally, just want to remind everybody to wear a mask and social distance. Please be kind to others and be kind to yourselves. Thanks for listening, and I hope you and yours stay and remain safe and healthy. In this episode, I talk to Josh Gondelman, a stand-up comedian, author of one and a half books, and an Emmy-winning writer for such shows as Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. He has actual Emmys, and I believe he is the first person I've interviewed who has one of the big four awards. Pretty cool. He currently writes for one of my favorite comedy series, The Desus and Mero Show on Showtime. He also hosts a podcast called Make My Day, a show where the central focus is niceness, a recurring theme in the Gondelman universe. I can verify that Josh is a hell of a nice guy because he allowed me to sweet talk him into chatting with me for more than an hour. We talk about everything from perceived cultural differences to taking pride in one's accomplishments. We also chat about Josh's sneaker fetish, his inability to accept kitchen assistance, and much, much more. Let's hear more from the man who has been described as a human cardigan, Josh Gondelman. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Josh Gondelman. I am a writer and comedian. I work at Jesus and Marrow and Showtime. And I have a podcast called Make My Day, which is a game show with only one contestant. I've done a bunch of other stuff, too. But this is not what I'm here to do. I'm here to talk to Mike. So I'm going to bring in your host. Thanks, Josh. Uh, it's uh, thank you for taking the time out to to do this. I really appreciate it. Oh um, yeah. Oh, of course. So I, I usually start with people's origin stories, but I've also read your book. <laughs> <laughs> so you are from Massachusetts, like just outside Boston, yeah. right? Just outside Boston, in the real sense, like eight miles outside, not just outside Boston, meaning Southern New Hampshire. Right. Yeah. Not Providence, <laughs> but legit. <laughs> not like Providence, outside. which. I feel like if you describe Providence to people from Providence as just outside Boston, they would fight you with knives. <laughs> probably, probably. As someone who has been to Providence a number of times, I can, I can uh, pretty mm-hmm. much verify that. <laughs> yeah. Now you live in New York. I live Brooklyn, in New York, right? yeah. I'm in Brooklyn. I, li- I, was in, uh, I lived in Harlem for about three years, I guess. And, uh, yeah, just under like two and a half, three years, and then have been in Brooklyn for the last no six six nice. i don't know my own the details of my own life they're very murky <laughs> to me six is that right you tell it's, me josh huh it's about six we'll, we'll, fig- we'll figure this out i'm doing you know what i'm i think it must be it's it's a little over five it's like five and a half at this point okay i'm like you splitting mean- the difference weird i've lived in this is so boring for the listeners i've lived in new york <laughs> city for nine years between Uptown in Manhattan and, and then Brooklyn for I guess the bulk of it now is Brooklyn. Whereas like the bulk of the time I've been like a comedian, this just occurred to me like I guess it became true last year. But like the bulk of the time that I've been a comedian has now been in New York, even though I consider myself very like from Massachusetts. And that's where I started. Why did you decide to be a comedian? What was the impetus for you deciding to be become a comedian? The I 
I'd always really wanted to do it. I was writing a little bit, like as a writing major in college, I went to, I decided to go to college for writing. That's like what I wanted. I thought it was going to be a playwright. That was it. I don't, I, it was like, I did a little bit of that in high school and won like a high school co- playwriting competition and was like, well, I guess this is what I do. So I was going to go to college for that and then kind of switch to being a fiction major. But I started doing stand up when I was 19 and it was partly because I just really liked writing and I liked performing, but I liked writing for myself to perform and partly because I had a friend who had started doing stand-up in Boston and our mutual friends from like high school and you know our guys we grew up with were like well if Joe's doing it why can't you do it you keep saying you want to do it but Joe's doing it you're not doing it so why aren't you doing it so I kind of got bullied into it was it that simple yes (laughs) Wow. yeah that was it I mean that's that was how it started and then now it's my job so, I would say there were steps in between, but that was the beginning. <laughs> wow. Doing the comedy and writing always kind of like hand in hand. Yeah. Uh, I, I think, I don't think I would be as happy just doing stuff where I was performing and, and not writing. And so I like writing for myself is really fun. I like writing for other people. I think I probably like writing for other people more than I like performing things other people have written. Sure. That said, if anyone listening to this wants to cast me in something, certainly I would be open to that. (laughs) So what's your process like? Like, particularly if you're writing for other people, because you have to kind of, I would assume, imagine your words coming out of someone else's mouth. Yeah. So I think, like, it's figuring out what needs to be said and then figuring out how, like, how this person would say it as close as I can get, you know? And I think, like, for different people I've written for you kind of have to get in the ballpark in different ways. Like with, with I used to write for Last Week Tonight with John Oliver and John was very hands-on with the scripts and you would write a draft and then he would, he would like, you know, tweak it and massage it with Tim Carvel, who's the, who's an executive producer there. And, and so you would get it in the ballpark and then they would mush it around on the page until by the time John recorded the show, he was reading the teleprompter and you know delivering really well he's like a great performer but doing it basically exactly as written and now I work for Jesus and Marrow and you kind of just get you it's like throwing an alley-oop to someone who jumps really high and that <laughs> you get it as close as you can you kind of write very simply and then you trust that what you put on the page is enough to get them where they need to go and then they improvise a lot so it's like very different writing experiences but like Ultimately, it's like knowing who you're writing for, knowing what they sound like, and then doing your best and then trusting that that gets enough of the way there that like by the time they're looking at it, they can, you know, kind of smooth out any little edges. Do the cultural differences between you and Jesus Nice and, and Mero, do those, how, do the, how does that like translate into the material that you write for them? I mean, I think that I'm there to pitch my the version of what they do that aligns with what they like to so like it's it's not like i'm there to just do what i do and be like oh this is me and you guys have to do what i say because like right. they're in charge and it's their show and that wouldn't make for the best show is them doing an impression of me although they do frequently do impressions of me do um, they really yeah oh yeah they it's on, sometimes on the podcast sometimes it makes it to the show it's just them making fun of me uh, and then but I'm pitching stuff that I think they'll like that comes 
from my point of view too. So it's, it's like the Venn diagram of what, what they're into and what I'm into. And that's what I try to pitch. And I think like the gaps in that point of view are filled by them being really generative of the material, you know, them being improvisational and having their own ideas that they, they want to put on the show. And then like having a writer's room with a diversity of experiences and, and people represented so that it fills in the gaps of like different perspectives, which is I think true of, of, many good writers rooms right is that the there are a, a lot of different perspectives and experiences are presented i should have said per, perceived cultural differences sure. because uh, it's very easy to like minimize people's experience into what they look like or sound like or whatever and you know you mentioned the venn diagram before i'm pretty sure that there are a lot of places i know for i mean not pretty sure i know that there are a lot of places where you guys meet Oh yeah. I mean, there's lots of stuff we do have in common. And I think even, I think what I always say is people who don't know me at all and just like see my, my big Jew face, they have the response of like, oh, it doesn't make sense that you would work with, with these hosts. And then people who know me even a little bit are like, oh, there's so much that you guys have in common, even though your comedic voices are very different and your backgrounds are very different. There's like a lot, I think our, senses of humor are like much more closely aligned than people who would uh, guess maybe from seeing like pictures of us side by side. Right. And I think that's part of a greater cultural conversation that Mm -hmm. we as a society need to have. It's the whole like, don't judge a book by its cover thing, but also recognizing the fact that everybody contains multitudes Mm -hmm. and you know, there are just because you know, you're a Jewish guy from Massachusetts, doesn't mean you're not going to have experiences in common with Afro-Latino guys from New York City. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah. I, you know, I just think that's part of a, a bigger conversation about the the totality and the wholeness of people that-, that Sure. I think, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think it's nice. And I, I, it's like, I don't, I don't take it personally when people, uh, there, there are certain things I think people assume about me that are true, but then there's more also. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, I think the things that people, uh, maybe the things that people assume are true about me are true. But like you said, multitudes, it's like part of this story. And and I think the guys, as we call them in the office, you know, Jesus and Mero, and I, there's like a, a lot of, a lot in common. And then there's other stuff that like, I don't presume is my domain or prerogative. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's certain stuff that I would never like, want to put in their mouths and like if it's stuff that they're interested in doing like I'm happy to work with but like I can only I can only write from my perspective and I don't, I don't like I try to be very like respectful of boundaries and not just be like well I'm here so I can do and say anything and that's fine there are no boundaries right no limits. when cool. so when you have to like you're obviously writing on a deadline mm-hmm. because you film and do all sorts of stuff do you ever have moments when you're just like, oh shit, like I got nothing? At this show, um, less so. It's like a little more of a churn than at my last job because we do two a week instead of one. And so, and I think there's there's also more that like kind of Jesus and Marrow like to work with like less on the page than than John. So in in a lot of ways, there's like less pressure to just like come up with stuff but on the other hand there is like the the things we do that are like 
outside of that realm, outside of them like responding to the news and responding to cultural events. I do think it, there are times where I'm like, oh, I don't know how much more, especially lately since we've been, you know, under quarantine conditions and everybody's working from home. It's like, I don't know how many more ideas I have to pitch on things that we can do with a green screen that are, you know, talking about contemporary stuff that, that Jesus and Meryl will want to do that will feel relevant in a couple of weeks, you know? So sometimes it is like the, these current conditions have been a little exhausting, but I'm really proud of the way the show has responded. And it's not, fortunately, it's not just on me. We have such a great writer's room. Like we did this piece a couple of weeks ago, maybe last week, who knows what time is that was called Beethoven versus Jehoven. And it was pitched and written and by Heaven Nagati, who's on staff. She's wonderful and so funny. And it was like a versus battle, an Instagram versus battle, but with Beethoven and then like kind of a Jay-Z type character from Beethoven's era. And oh, it was, God. yeah. And it, it was kind of springboarding off the story that like Beethoven might've been black and Heaven pitched this great sketch. And so the, she wrote a bunch, they improvised a bunch. Everyone pitched kind of, all the writers pitched like comments for the Instagram live. And it was, it was really fun. So like, you know, we have a whole great staff and I don't, I don't feel like it's, it's never like all on my shoulders to come up with something. So it's nice to feel like, okay, I'm going to give my best and like everyone else is going to give their best and we'll get it done together. Right on. And in addition to your writing for TV, you've got a podcast and you've written books. Yeah. I've written one and a half books. <laughs> Wait, there's a half? Yeah, well, I wrote a book with a friend. Okay. How do you like, I, you're busy. You've got a lot of jobs. You also guest on podcasts and you mm-hmm. do other stuff. And uh, how do you manage all of that stuff? I, I mean, part of it is just that like, I feel most at ease when I'm really busy, which is speaks to probably a different psychological uh, condition that I'm living with. If um, you find out what it is, let me know. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I don't mean to like, to claim any kind of like specific neuroatypical condition, but it is like, I think there is something that I would say is uh, slightly unhealthy about my need to like fill my time with work. And, and I'm working on that in terms of like having stuff that is not work to do the NBA being back helps. Yeah, it is. It is. And I mean like being home all the time, not to like date this podcast too badly, but like being home all the time, I'm spending more time like playing board games with my wife and like we're watching all of cheers right now. So Ooh, like, all right. are, yeah. We are doing like, I'm doing like more hobbyish. So I'm cooking a lot more baking. Like I used to bake a bunch and for like occasions and stuff, you know, I would bake to like, if someone's birthday, I would bake a batch of brownies and puritanical New England brownies, not like fun California brownies. And glad you differentiated. I, yeah. Well, people ask it's now, I think I'm at the age where more people are like, Oh, what's in these brownies. And I was like, just brownies. And I'm like, Oh, thank God. And it's not the, like, I feel like everybody is like, we have our, we have our weed hookup and when I need edibles, I have edibles. And right, uh, right See, now me, I just want a dessert. I would just be like, how much sugar is in these brownies? Yeah. And it's too much. <laughs> right. Oh, and also, not. right. Your wife, like myself, happens yes. to be diabetic. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm just certain that question has not come up, has come up before. Yeah. Well, <laughs> she has, when the, the, not a problem, something that I know about when I bake, I bake, we I have a recipe for a double batch, which is, 
it's two cups of sugar total for this big batch of brownies. And I know when I make them, my wife Maris will have one bite total. And then I am responsible for figuring out what to do with the rest of them. So I have a friend who's moving to the neighborhood. I just baked a batch of brownies and I'm giving her like a third because living alone, she doesn't need more than like, I don't imagine she would like, it's kind of, there's like an amount you can give someone that's a burden, right? It's just <laughs> like, now you have to eat these. Right. Uh, because, there are or, 24 or brownies. Friend. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I gave her eight brownies and then I'm working my way through some. And then I had outdoor distance coffee with a friend and I brought her four. And so, but like, I know that I, that it is my responsibility to figure out what to do with these brownies. Respect. Yeah. yeah. Which I guess kind of segues into one thing that you are actually kind of vocal about yourself. And I see every time I have an experience with you is that you are a very nice person. You're a very kind, very like mannered person. Where did that come from? I, I think part of it's nature and part of it's nurture. I have very nice parents and that's a lot of it. It's not all of it. Like people turn out nice with real mean parents sometimes, but I think it's like a combination of DNA and disposition. And just also like, it was really an important part of my upbringing was like treating people with respect and and being kind to people and I think it's interesting because I like took that to heart a lot in a way that I think was maybe more than my parents even intended not in, I'm that's not a humble brag I like when this is my book but when I left was about to leave for college my dad sat me down and said you know this I'm glad this didn't happen but I was worried when you started high school that people were just going to take advantage of you oh. and I was like you didn't tell me that then and he's like no it turned out fine I wanted to make, I thought you'd be you know I turned out fine so nothing to worry about I was wrong but like very funny and so I, it's been like a learning and growing process in my adult life has been like learning when and how to like tell people to fuck off. And it's funny to me because you, you know, you grew up outside of Boston, you live in New York and Boston Mm -hmm. and New York are generally considered to be by people who don't live in Boston and New York. Yeah. Places with like the two nastiest like sets of people in the U S pretty much. I, I think Boston is substantially meaner than New York. I would agree with you. Yeah. I, I'm not, I don't, I don't think New York is like a warm and fuzzy place generally like across the board, but I think there's more, it's such a big city that there's like an, an apathy when you're walking through New York that like, it's just like, it doesn't, Boston, it feels more possible that you would just be walking down the street and someone across the street be like, Hey, fuck you. And you're like, what? And they'd be like, you heard me. And like, not trying to start a fight, not like going to rob you, not going to no specific beef with you. Just like, they want you to know that they don't like your vibe from across the street. And New York, I think that person would be more likely to just ignore you entirely. Yeah. The way I've seen it and the way a lot of other people who've spent time in both cities have seen it is like people in New York aren't nasty. They just have places to go. Yeah. And they don't, right. And you're, they don't want you to be in the way. Like New York, it's like, hey, I'm going there. What are you doing, right? Like tourists, stop looking up. I have to go to work. (laughs) I don't care that you're marveling at the Empire State Building. To me, that's just a building on my way from point A to point B. And Boston, there is like, 
I think they're not everybody. This is not like saying all the people of Boston are bad, right. but like, I think the city has a little different edge to it where like people are busy. People do have places to go, but there's an additional kind of like smaller city, like chip on the shoulder that, that some people have little brother syndrome. Yeah. Or, or like even like you see it more, it's like, it's not as present. Like, I don't know. It just feels that I've just had more experiences there of people being like, yeah, little brother syndrome or, or just like, I don't know. Just, I, I sometimes find like, this is not just about Boston. This is not about Boston specifically, but I sometimes find like in New York, people are like, I want you to prove your good, right? Like whatever you're doing, like prove to me why you're worth my time. And then I've been to other cities where there's like a little more of a sense. And and again, this isn't just from the general public. This is like, you'll meet a person professionally and it's a little more of like, you're not from around here and, and we do things a certain way here. And you're, I'm like, I don't trust that you will do that. If that makes sense. Like I think, and Boston is not that, but it's like, it's like a couple of steps towards that end of the spectrum of like, Hey, we have our, like a thing that you hear with standup bookers is a variation of like, and, and I, I used to get this more, you know, when I, when I had fewer credits and, and was less good at comedy, but you would kind of email someone and you go, Hey, I would love to, to work at your comedy club. I would love to like do a weekend there. And they would go, well, you know, we have our guys like, and, and I think that's like New York, there, there's some of that, right? Like every place you go, there are people ensconced there that are really great at what they do. But there's a little, there, there's like, I think here more of an idea of like, if you're good, it's in my best interest to align with you. And whereas in, in like certain places, like, you know, in certain like different markets or different different venues, there's a little, sometimes an idea of like, well, we we have our our guys already and like, it to us is like a, a really close knit community and you're coming from the outside and like, we don't, we don't need people outside this community. We have our, we have our people. Yeah. If that it's makes an sense. Exclusive, it's an exclusive club. Yeah. And I think some of it is, it's built on like, I, I like in the, com- the comedy scene in Boston, in Boston specifically, there are so many really great people who have been doing stand up for so long. And so like, and a lot of the clubs locally are like people, people really look forward to seeing those comedians. Sure. So, and especially when I, when I was younger, there was like not a real appetite for what I was going to do anyway. So it, it was kind of this thing of like, sure, we know what you do is fine, but like, we know what we're doing and we we're not like blown away by what you do. And, and you know, and we just like, you're not part of this inner circle of like and, and and some of it and that that that's not just me that's not bitterness i think there's like colin quinn talked about it in the past i think it was in the movie when stand-up stood out about colin quinn coming to boston to perform and him being introduced as like this guy's from new york and like the audience immediately turning on him of this course like yeah late late 70s early 80s i'm like that's such a it's such a funny attitude to me. He doesn't play for the Yankees. You know what I mean? Right. Like, he's not, he doesn't run the stock market. Like there's no <laughs> reason to have antipathy towards this artist 
who is coming to entertain you and and you go oh this guy's from new york and you're like get him out of here and i think there's like a little of that i have so much affection for so much of the city and so many of my favorite comedians are people that that live there and or that I met there who have since moved and, or, you know, are from there and I met after they moved. But I do think there's like a little bit of this, there's like a little bit of an edge that I appreciate. Sure. And I'm terrified of. It's got, I mean, it's got character. I think coming from Boston and moving to New York is probably a much more difficult thing than coming from New York and moving to Boston. I don't know. I think I'm interested in that because I, I think there's, I think going from New York to Boston, you, you kind of have to, it's coming, coming from Boston to New York, I was kind of a medium-sized fish in a medium-sized pond. And then when I got here, I was a very small fish in a very big a huge, pond, which, right. which I was kind of prepared for. But like going from New York to Boston, there's, there's like a level at which it, you can be a very big fish in a medium-sized pond and people go, well, you're from another pond. Like, we don't want you in this pond. And that's not, that's not about, I, I, I think Boston has a reputation as being a tremendously racist place. And as with many American cities, there is like a systemic, a component of systemic racism and a, a strain of people there that are openly or tacitly racist. Absolutely. But that's not what I mean. What right. I mean, I, I don't mean to like let the city off the hook for racism, but I do mean apart from that, there is like another, like, why do we need you here? That I think like, if that makes sense. Yeah, Boston to me just seemed like so unnecessarily provincial. Mm-hmm. And I was just kind of like, why? <laughs> it's like the, the meme that, that has the person going like, why though? It's kind of like, yeah, okay, you're a city. It's great. But you just have this whole like, not, it's, it's pride, which is great. But it, the pride element just kind of like veers in a direction that it doesn't necessarily need to veer into. Yeah, I mean, I think there's also so much good there in terms yeah. of like the the arts and culture, and I I, I think I, I feel like I've been speaking very like negatively. No, but I I I also I, I don't know. I think there's like I mean, incredible museums, incredible like so much com- so much of comedy of the past thirty to forty years has come from that scene either directly or indirectly. Not every, but you know, like so many people, Conan O'Brien and Conan O'Brien and Jay Leno are both from the Boston suburbs, which is like fascinating because they were in this like direct, direct conflict. war. Yeah. You know I mean? And yep. so it's that it wasn't. Yeah. So, so I think that like all these luminaries, I mean, people know the names have come from there and, and there's, there's so much comedy that happens there and music you know, like there's all the stuff, but I just, I found a hard time gaining traction there. And part of it was I wasn't as good as I am now. Like I, but I don't know. It just feels a little, it's the, I think there is, there are people there that are, I've been here forever. I'm really good that we, I've built something here so when when you are coming up in like whatever art scene, you're kind of coming up underneath this old guard who is a lot of the times very talented and very and very tenured and experienced and and connected in good ways. And and then a lot of people 
leave, right? A lot of people kind of stick around for come there for college or come and stick around for a couple of years after mm-hmm. if that yep. and then go. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of turnover, but there's also a lot of consistency and it's like a weird semi churn where like the bottom and the middle of like the art scenes, I feel like there's a lot of this. And then at the top, it's a lot of like, well, we put down roots. Like I'm, a, I'm the cobblestone. Do you not understand? You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and you go, Oh shoot. Like you are really accomplished and good. And in, and in a way that like, there's it kind of, there's not always room for like, you like really have to, kind of fight to be like a new emerging voice there. And that, that all makes sense. Uh, how have you been able to keep your positivity, like your, your attitude in a, such a competitive field? Mm-hmm. Like I'm sure rejection is a part of, of your experience. Sure. Like what, what is it that keeps your head up? What is it that keeps you from not turning into like a bitter <laughs> you know bitter sure. ang- like going against your personality kind of i mean i've had a real i've had real good fortune the last several years i've been very fortunate in my career i've had like things that i've worked at for a long time have like gone my way and and that's really nice and i i'm like i've had a a, a pretty good time even before that kind of looking at the incremental steps forward and, and excuse me, being able to like appreciate and enjoy that. But like also, you know, my, my life right now, even though I haven't accomplished all my dreams and have, excuse me, have career frustrations, I have like lots of great friends. I am currently like financially stable and okay. And, and I have like a pretty lucky brain in terms of like not having a brain that catastrophizes and, and, and frets. And, and I think like, that's not like a brag. That's just like, oh, that's not a condition. That's a condition that some people don't have and it makes things much harder just from the baseline. So I, I think I've, it's like a combination of genetic brain luck and like career stuff going okay that I have less to stress about materially. I'm just like a really wonderful support system of, of friends and family. Plus in terms of like my creative output, I think doing stuff that is like, a little more upbeat or a little more gentle is a lane that I fit well into. It, it, it feels natural and it's like less occupied a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And I've had, I've, other people have said it to me like Pete Lee, the, the comedian who's like, has a real sweet disposition and writes like incredibly tight, impactful jokes, but just like a real, sweet midwestern charm on stage he said to me when i first started working at the concert pete pete had told me that like when i started working at the cellar he's like what feels intimidating like about you having a different vibe than some of the other people that are like real fixtures here is that you're not going like when you go up after them you will have a different energy and so like you know there's so many people that are just like killers that have like and and people who i love watching that have a more like hard boiled persona and, yeah. and you on stage and that like, I'm not going to thrive if I try to do what they're doing. And by not trying to do what they're doing, I'm like giving the audience a little change of pace, you know? That I think ties into 
masculinity in a certain way because I do think that a lot of comics are acerbic mm-hmm. or troubled. Troubled maybe isn't the word that I want to use, but I'm not sure what is the word that I want to use. You know, self-deprecating or, sure. you know, all of that stuff. And I'm even thinking of, you know, a lot of comedians I like that appear to be really, really nice people. Of kind course. Of have that edge to them. And I think it's, I, I, part of it, I think, is like a dude competition kind of thing. And it just comes off as very, like, you know, can come off as, like, gruff or, you know, kind of... I think uh, gruff, I think, is a great word for it. Okay. I think there's, like, there's, like, and this is not to talk about people offstage who I think are often very different than their onstage persona. But I do think there's a lot of comedy that has kind of like a uh, gruff edge to it. And that's, again, not a pejorative. I think that is like one way that people do it and do it really well. But there is, there is like a traditional like performance of like literal performance on stage of like masculinity that is kind of tied up in some of that. You know, how do you come into like comfort with the fact that you're like, you have no, you don't seem to have a desire to play that kind of role at all. Like you just, you seem like you're very like comfortable in your own skin. Sure. Well, I mean, it took a long time to get to that point. And I think I'm lucky to be working at a time where like, there is a little more room. I mean, like, I'm so close to that on the spectrum of different performers like I think there are you know there's so much there are so many different kinds of performances of comedy and I think like gentler dude is still is a very like privileged position compared to like the way women historically have been treated in comedy and comedy clubs and and LGBTQIA people like of of all genders so I think like just being like a straight white dude, I still get a lot of benefit of the doubt. So I don't want to discount that kind of privilege. But also I think like getting pretty good at it and doing the job well has been really helpful in that like I I can do it and I don't have to feel like less than. And, and I'm, I get along with a lot of people that, that do comedy in very different ways than I do, which I think is like nice. And I, I, I like that. I, I don't, I don't want to like look down my nose at people for doing a different thing than I do. It's like, if it's, it's no different than them, someone else being like, oh, well, you're doing it wrong. That's like, well, I think there's plenty of meat on this bone or sure. know, plenty of, I guess, if we're not, if in a vegetarian sense, plenty of corn on this cob, let's say, <laughs> for, for everybody. Um, but like, yeah, I think it took a little while for me to get comfortable and not be um, self-conscious about like, oh, I have like a slightly different vibe. And and a lot of it was just growing up and being like, well, this is who I am. And it's like who I am as a person. And it's who I am as a, like, let's say an artist and uh, or a writer and comedian. And, and it is like, it doesn't make sense to pretend to be otherwise. I like that. Yeah. And it, and it's like, I, I have thrived this way and there's no reason to like to change yeah there's and there's no reason to change no reason to to like pretend that i am uncomfortable with like just being kind of a like gentler dude about things and it's i think that's it's been helpful but it like it definitely was more of a struggle at first sorry i'm so rambly tonight be Um, rambly josh i think early on in my career 
I was trying on like material that didn't fit me as well or like attitudes that didn't fit me as well or even once I kind of found who I was it took me a little while to like figure out how to be myself in a way that was like sincere but also funny and 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 so it took a little while and it, and I think there were probably some growing pains feeling like oh I'm seeing people do this really well and I'm not good at that so am I good at this broader thing and it, and it, so it took me a little while to like find my footing and and I, there are lots of like role models for that too but like some I think a lot there you have to like maybe look a little harder to find them or did 15, 16 years ago when I was starting. Outside of, of your job, have you always been comfortable in your own skin as a, like as Josh, as a human? I was like too comfortable when I was a kid and I had to like, not toughen up, but I, which, cause I think that's like a harmful thing to say is like, you gotta get, you know, yeah, you gotta man up on the edges. Yeah. Right. But it wasn't like that. Cause, cause I think there's a difference between, I mean, okay, so man, man up not in the context of man versus woman, right? Like traditional, like whatever people think of as masculine versus feminine. But I do think there's a, I had to man up in the, the difference between man versus boy. I had to like grow up and, and I grew into a man, but like whatever gender you grow into the adult form of. Does sure. that make sense? Yes, so like, totally. I think like manning up in terms of like, don't be a little, don't be a child. Don't be a this. kid. Be like a grown up. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think there, I was like a very, like I was saying before, I was like a very soft, genuine, uh, little weirdo. And I think <laughs> it took a little while for me, you know, I, it was, I wasn't like a social outcast. You kind of made it sound like. No, 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 no. I mean, I was like a little weirdo, but like I had friends and, and, was not picked on in school but I think there was like a little bit of growing up to do just in terms of like taking that gentleness and like exuberance and like eccentricity and kind of focusing that into like okay well how do I make this like how do I refine this into something that is like useful as a member of society and has a confidence and isn't like reflexively self-deprecating because, you know, because I, I kind of, you know, I played sports, but I wasn't like good at them. And so there's, there was like a, a self-deprecation because of that. And, you know, I, I wore these big glasses when I played basketball <laughs> and it was, which is kind of like a bit, like I, I should have just gotten the like, Rex specs that like go on, but I got these big glasses, like they look like the ones I have now, but just like, 40% bigger, Whoa. 50% bigger and and had like a strap on the back like you like like you I was playing in like the 50s. And I think it was like kind of a a reflexive way to be like, look, I know I'm a little goofy, but I think I don't I don't feel the need to do that as much anymore. Like again, I think I grew into myself and was like, well, this is what I'm like and I like dress a way that I like to dress and not the way that I'm like uh, a little less like costumey and a little, you know, and I think that came with like growing up and becoming confident and, and learning that like I can be authentic and funny and and have the interest that I, the various sets of interests that I have from like basketball to baking to rap music to writing and and, and not feel like I have to go like, well, isn't it weird? 
you know <laughs> like isn't it weird that I'll, and and i think that's like part of the my my position at work and part of my relationship with with jesus and marrow is that there's there's like teasing about like what i'm like but there's no like isn't it weird that this would be the thing like it's the teasing is all based on like who i am and not who i'm perceived to be sure you know like sure. they'll they tease me about like the red Sox being bad or like you know just like general boston stuff or like just how i my, my like general politeness in the office but there's no like i don't feel the the need to be preemptively like look i know and and I think that's that's healthy and helpful, especially because they know that I have so much respect for them and their perspective, and and I know that they hired me and they're like working for them because they wanted me to work for them. So like, there's and similar that's like similar to how I am in the world, like whether it's with friends or dating. I you know I'm married now and will stay so. <laughs> I I mean now as opposed to the past, not opposed to right, the future. Yeah. and. I think that like I became confident, not in a way that I became like tough, uh, tough, like outwardly tough, but a little bit inwardly like, oh, I'm, I'm not worried about people misunderstanding who I am or where I'm coming from. I can like do the things that are natural to me and be who I am in a way that's less like of a performance of, of that and more of like, oh, this is just what I'm like and, and take or leave. And, and if, if it's leave, no hard feelings. And if it's take, terrific. I, I'm trying to get there, Josh. That's a great attitude to have. And interestingly, I, I think that people who are like super swaggy and have that kind of cock of the walk thing, mm -hmm. the, the external confidence, a lot of it, I feel, is performative in a way for a lot of people. Like it's kind of, you know, trying to get yourself to believe your own hype. Sure. Yeah, and, I mean, I, yeah. I think... I think there's sometimes an element of that with people. I, yeah, I think like confidence is misallocated. Like a lot of the wrong people have it and a lot of the wrong people lack it. You know, a lot of the people who should have it lack it. Right. And that's not their fault. It's just like what we value in society and who we build up and stuff. But I definitely like, I do think it's like when I see people being really like psyched about their own accomplishments and the, and, and believing in themselves, I like to see that like I feel like people should feel good when they are doing good stuff and like whether it's like making art or having kids or you know start starting a restaurant or whatever it is you do if, you, if you're like I you know unless it's like unless it's damaging to society or to people right. I think like feel good about what you do feel good about being like um, a, a car dealer who is really great at matching people with a car they want. I feel really good about being a like a sanitation worker who takes pride in, in their job. You know what I mean? Like in, in keeping the streets clean. Like whatever you're doing, I love seeing people feel like psyched about their own accomplishments. People should be more proud of their own accomplishments. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know that we live in a world that promotes that necessarily. And, and I think that, again, I, and not to be like a... a dweeby little broken record about this but like i do think there are people who you like who society uh, encourages to be proud of their accomplishments and people who society does not encourage to take visible pride in being good at things right like i think women it, it is not as celebrated as it is with men to like big to big yourself up when you when you feel like 
good about something you've done. And, and, and I think that's, it's, un, it's unfortunate that, that's, that, that there's that imbalance because it is like as much as it's annoying and feels hollow to see someone who's like, I'm the best at everything. Nobody is as good as me. Back up off me, I'm amazing. It is like so wonderful to me to see people be like, instead of being like, hey, I don't know, I've got this fucking stupid podcast that I do and maybe you want to listen, but I don't know, it's just a thing that I do. People are like, hey, I worked really hard on this and I'm really proud of it and I would love if you, I would love for people to listen to it because I think they would get something out of it because I put something into it. And, and that is like a joy to me to witness. Love that. When we were uh, emailing back and forth about you doing the show, mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned that you, you, that platonic friendships was something that was important to you. Yeah. And that's something that you and I have never really gotten into yeah. uh, during our, our conversations. I'm curious how that like plays in. Cause you know, you're married mm -hmm. and you've got a, a beautiful dog. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, what's your sort of stance on, on just maintaining other relationships? Cause I like, I think there are some people who find their partner and then kind of the rest of the world almost doesn't matter in a way, mm -hmm. or they think that that commitment means that the rest of the world shouldn't matter and relationships mm -hmm. not, other relationships are not as valuable. Like, how do you, you know, how do you juggle uh, all that stuff? I mean, I definitely think that my relationship with my wife is the, the most important relationship day to day in my life. Like I, I don't, like I haven't prioritized like who is more important, my parents or, you know what I mean? But like, right. But I do think like the, in terms of like my, the, my day-to-day -day life and my like future, my relationship with my wife is so important and I love her so much. And like being really present for her and devoted to her is like super important to me. And yes, so that's, that's like the baseline for that. But I also think I'm also a person, I'm like, I really value friendship as well. And I think like, I'm a pretty social person. I'm out a lot doing standup under usual conditions. I like, I like to see friends and you know, I'm, I'm like, I like a good phone call. Ooh. Yeah. I really? like a phone call. Yes, I do. love a phone call. So do not much care for a FaceTime. You're the second person I've spoken to recently. Who's been like, I'm all about the phone call. And I used to think it was a generational thing. Like people above a certain age were cool with the phone. People below a certain age were not. But you're younger than me. I hate the phone. <laughs> Interesting. I love a phone. Oh man, love a really? phone call. Yes. I have since I was a kid. I have always gotten like super anxiety when I, when talking on the phone. Oh, see, I was a big phone call kid. I me? would be on the phone. Oh yeah, love the phone. Love. Yeah, absolutely. I and and I love I love a text. I, it's, it's not like I don't, like, I understand that not everybody wants to talk on the phone and I don't do that much talking on the phone with friends, but like, I have a few friends that I like catch up with once a month or so for like an hour on the phone. That's great. I prefer that to like a friendship FaceTime. Like I like a professional FaceTime because I feel like you can lock in with somebody, especially like we know each other, but we don't know each other like extremely well years know yeah. each other yeah. yeah so like when i'm talking to friends from college like i don't need to see them to like be locked in but i think we're having like a conversation that with like goals and aims and we are we have known each other for uh, less tenure and and so like great or like you know a business meeting for work 
with, with other producers, it helps to be able to like visually check in because you have like goals you're trying to accomplish rather than just like, Hey, what's up? Like, and go. Yeah. Um, so, but I, I do, I, and, and I feel like when you're talking, when I'm talking to somebody that I've known for a long time, I am happy to like not be visually observed and like be able to be like wandering around my apartment or, you know, pacing or like, Oh shoot, I got this email. I'm going to like, just write like, no real quick. And like, in a way that like is tougher when you're FaceTiming with somebody. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I like am a big checker inner with people. I feel like I have a lot of like emotional energy that I don't, it doesn't like exhaust me to expend. Excuse me. My wife called me she, when quarantine started, I think she called me the ultimate extrovert. <laughs> which I I think there's a lot of truth in that I do like alone time too but I am like I I think I think there are people like I'm I think I stopped just short of that in terms of like something that is like just a pure outpouring of of extrovert energy like I don't like I I've never been one to be like going out to a nightclub and just dancing with whoever is there. That's <laughs> you don't, like not, you don't strike me as no, that type, Josh. that's not me. I, that's not, that's not what I'm about. So I think there's, and it's, I'm a bad dancer is a big part of it. That doesn't but, stop people. No, that's true. It stops me though. Uh, <laughs> and not that it should stop other people. I don't think you have to be right. good at dancing no, to yeah. like doing it. And but that's so subjective I'm so, anyway. I'm so bad at dancing. I think other people have less of a good time when I'm dancing around them. Wow. So okay. It's just, yeah, Curdy. Yeah. It's like an ambient, it's like a kind of a, a visual like fart. I want to see this. And I don't know. I mean, not least because of our current uh, uh, social conditions. I don't know when I'm ever going to be able to see Josh Gondelman dancing. I do it so rarely. I'll, I'll dance at a wedding. That's basically it. And even then it's like 50, 50. So do we have to like liquor you up? Might not. It might never happen. (laughs) But yeah, I, I, I like really, value like sincere like sincere emotional connection with friends my, that, my friend my friend mike kaplan do you know him really funny comedian. uh myq mm-hmm. yes uh yeah. we're, well we're facebook friend, or instagram yeah. friends. <laughs> he i've known him for a very long time and he's a big like platonic friend i love you person and i at first it was unexpected not unexpected well yeah but first it was like oh do people do this? And then I was like, well, I love you too, man. That's like, that's how we are friends. We have a, a love for each other. We've known each other a very long time. And that is like not in, that is an accurate way to talk about our friendship. And I said that I have a friend who, you know, I had a friend who was having a hard time and we had a real sincere conversation and I said, hey, all right, call me if you need anything. Love you. And that's like, you know, that kind of, it's not every friendship is that. Sure. But like, I think to be like emotionally available as a friend is very important to me. I think it's important as well. I, and I am, I am one of those, I love you people. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, it it took a long time for me to get to the point where I was kind of comfortable with that. I I think I might've grown up with a, a slightly more rigid definition of masculinity than you did. Mm -hmm. So saying that to another guy, even as someone who's a member of the LGBTQ community, just felt weird. But it's super important just to let people know that you value them. And it doesn't always have to come out in that way. But I think there is a level of like emotional access that men are discouraged from displaying in friendship. And I think it's like really beneficial and important to like peel that away when you can to be like really available to platonic friends in terms of being like, 
hey, if you are feeling in a weird way and you want to talk about it, like, let's talk about it. Right on. I love that. So what's on the horizon for Josh? I, I mean, obviously now is kind of a weird time to be like, well, I got shit on the horizon. But is there, is there anything in the immediate future that we should be looking forward to? I mean, the, the big project I'm working on right now outside of my job is the podcast, which I've been working really hard on and feel really proud of. It's called Make My Day. It's a one-on-one game show where comedy game show where each week there's one contestant so they always win and the point of the show is to cheer me up so all the games are designed for the guests to cheer me up and i love the fact that even your podcast is based around just you being a nice person i mean and do you do you need cheering up on a regular basis no i think it's a little facetious in that like (laughs) kind of the part of it is like i'm really there hyping up the guest and like and it was originally a panel show where three people competed to see who could cheer me up the most so it felt less of like a one-on-one check-in but we kept the general vibe of it and when quarantine hit we pivoted to do it as a one-on-one game show which is like very silly and and kept the idea of like, okay, one person has to cheer me up, which I feel like is a much more intimate thing than being like, you three people compete to cheer me up. Cause yeah, that's still there's, there's more, right. There's more of a challenging element to it. There's competition amongst the, the contestants, but now it's just like a very sincere, like let's delight each other for 25 minutes or whatever. And, and that is like something that I think about a lot with like comedy is like being delightful to the audience or to the whatever the audience is like being like not always happy but like creating a feeling of like joy in them absolutely any any recent sneaker purchases uh, you want to talk about? And, I, and we've talked about like you're a sneakerhead, which and the sneakers that you get it's not like you're like going for the latest like jordans or whatever you're buying very unique looking sneakers i prefer that i i think and that's another like i think that's another thing that's like i got a little more comfortable doing because i think like i have some of some of the things that are like the big ones like i have a pair of the jordan 11 the space jams that the the uh, model of and the colorway that michael jordan wore in the movie space jam before he even wore them on the court i think because he had been out of basketball so i have those and i like them but like i i kind of i have a lot of respect for the shoes that are like classics like the but i also do you just not wear them the ones that are like super dope like i don't have that many i'll have a couple but like i mostly go for like comfort and like what i think looks interesting because my my in terms of a collection, I would rather have the version of the thing that's like more fun for me to wear than the one that is like more traditionally beloved. Like to me, the having like when they, the red and black Jordan 11s that came out end of last year, maybe around Thanksgiving, I was like, these are great. But so many people who are into sneakers are going to get these. They're going to be in demand. In the, and, and so it'll drive up the price. Maybe I'll be able to get them for retail, but like, it's also, it's more of a, like, I see that you have these, which signifies this, you know, like, you, you know what the classics are. Mm-hmm. Whereas I'm more into like, excuse me, um, undefeated 
this like I think it's a skate shop or they 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 have a, a label in um in LA and they put out a few different Air Max 90s like right when quarantine started they they had already been planned and there's one that was maybe they came up before quarantine even they were all black that are really good and those ones sold out immediately and the resale value went went way up and then the ones that I got that I liked better were like a bright blue with kind of hits of like purple and like kind of a tennis ball volts yellow green and to me it's just like I would rather wear those because I I like the way they look than have the one that people will go that, that like the real heads will be like oh he copped the the all black 90s like that's a good cop you know what I mean that's right. like that's like the cool thing I would rather have the one that's like a little less cool that that suits my taste a little more because to me it's like having an all black sneaker that looks good looks great it's like a great sneaker but that the having that to appeal to people who know the difference between various all black sneakers in a in a really discerning way is less interesting to me not uninteresting like i do want people who are like really in the sneaker world to be like hey that's cool i like what you're doing like i like your collection but it, it is i don't have the I've been rambling so much. I apologize. I don't, don't have apologize. The, I don't feel the need to like accumulate all the classics for the sake of having them. If they're not the iteration of the shoe that I like the best. Sure. Yeah. I just like the fact that there are things, you know, you post uh, your shoe collection on mm-hmm. Instagram and I'm like, I don't see anybody other than like Cameron wearing these, but thank you. On Josh, it kind of makes sense. I like it. And, and I don't dress super flashy. Otherwise, like it's a lot of cardigans and band t-shirts and like kind of, you know, crew neck sweaters lately and, and, and jeans. And so like to wear like kind of a flashier sneaker feel it's fun. And it's like a nice way to spruce up something without having to like be that good at flashy dressing, which I'm not. And I don't, I feel very, you know, have a couple like floral pattern shirts that I'm like, Oh, is this too ostentatious (laughs) that I'll wear mostly like with a suit, you know, so that it's like this much is visible, like the yeah. triangle between my neck and my sternum is visible. It's, it's a hint of yeah uh, color. I'm I'm not Brightness. like a super I'm not a super flashy dresser, and I'm not like a clothes horse really. In a, I'm not like oh I'm not a flashy dresser, but like I'll spend twenty five hundred dollars on a suit. Like that's also not me. I like dress pretty sensibly and and utilitarian. Plainly. Yeah, you feel a pretty utilitarian. But the shoes, I like really let myself go wild. I love it. Thank you. I love it. So I have a, a series of final questions, and I'll let you pick. Let's do it. From our, our you can answer no, you can answer one or all of them. So okay. here are my my the my this is my final question spiel. First question is, what is the best advice you've ever been given? Mm-hmm. The second advice or the second question is, if twenty twenty Josh could give a pep talk to like 15 year old Josh, what would yeah. he say? And yeah. the third question is what are the most, what are the most traditionally masculine and traditionally not masculine things about you? So you can answer one of those questions or answer all of them, whichever you want. Okay. Let me, let me start with the second one. I think if I could give a pep talk to 15 year old me, I would be like, Hey, the stuff that you like to do. Great. Do it. And, um, and that's like who, that's who you are. 
and, and it's okay and and you will like be okay with it and, and that will be what's appealing to people it, not that like you don't have to like apologize and again the thing the the behavior i have is like so mildly outside the norm but like <laughs> i feel i think when you're 15 feeling like you have any kind of different inclinations and interests is like kind of an alienating yeah you're like on a, at I'm least a, a level. Yeah. yeah or it's just like oh i'm like the nerdy one but it's like i don't know you don't just because you're it's like not yeah it's just like keep doing the things that you're interested in and it's gonna work out and like being confident about it is more appealing to people you want to date more more calming to people that you don't want to date, platonically being like really comfortable in your skin and like cool with what you're into and and what you what you like is that that puts people at ease when you're at ease rather than that is absolutely kind of true. scrambling to do things that make people feel comfortable so th- that's what i would say just like be be like you're not cool but like that's cool that, no, <laughs> and not that's cool like that's hip that's cool and that like that's okay don't worry about it you will it, you're never gonna have to pass some kind of test you'll be fine that's definitely the pep talk that 15 year old me needs it's just like you don't have to you don't have to like be aggressive and you don't have to but you also don't have to like take the wind out of your own sails just like he'll be fine relax relax that would be the one word (laughs) relax stop being such like a frantic nerd the last one most and least traditional masculine things about me i think most are that like i'm kind of a slob and that i don't yeah that i mean like i'm not gross like i bathe and such (laughs) and cut my toenails um and i like wash my dishes or I wash I wash the because I, I do the cooking at, at home when we when we eat at home so I wash I you know I wash the dishes but wait you cook the, and you wash the dishes cooking and wash the dishes wow I feel like kitchen stuff is like where I do a lot of household contributing in terms of like cooking washing the dishes that's most of it um, I gotta ask if you're like are you one of those like territorial kitchen people like get the hell out of my kitchen I I'm I'm not territorial, but I also don't know how to accept help. So like, I don't, like, I don't, I don't delegate well. So rather than be like, oh, can you cut the vegetables up for this? I'll be like, well, I only know how to do this if I boil the water for the pasta, then cut the vegetables. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know how to save time by delegating. So I'm just like, oh, I got this. Don't worry about it. And I I like to do, in, in quarantine, it's like, it's, cooking and and folding laundry is like my podcast listening time got it but yeah i mean i think least traditionally and and i like i like a lot of like dude stuff like i like an action movie and a sport and which again these are not only the realm of dudes but it is traditional traditional yeah yeah, masculinity or stereotypical Um, stereotypical right stereotypical i guess that's that's the right word yeah and then least traditional or stereotypical is like I mean, and a lot of this comes from my dad is that my dad did most of the cooking, not all of it at home. He did all of the baking. My mom doesn't bake and my, my dad is really good. And my sister is really good and I'm medium good. I'm like less focused. Than You're I. self-effacing. I'm, I'm medium good. I mean, medium good. Like my sister and dad will, are both like great. They can do like an apple pie from scratch with a scratch crust. And like, I'm just not that as ambitious. So Dang. I did, I can do like 
a key lime pie from scratch with a graham cracker crust, which is a lot easier. But like, not bad. Medium. It's more than I can do. It's, <laughs> I, I'm, I sometimes feel like executing on an, executing very well on a medium ambition is like more beneficial at times than executing medium well on a loftier ambition. I would agree with you. Not always. Like, I, there's like a real, there's sometimes a place for like a big swing and a miss, but like, I don't think that's culinary. <laughs> you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. You don't want to, you don't want a big swing and a miss when you're feeding, particularly when you're feeding other people. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. If I was cooking for myself and was like, I wonder if I can do this, um, like pan sear these scallops. And then I just ruin it. I was like, yeah, that's fine. But if I'm like cooking for someone else and I, I want to like, give them something they can eat and right. don't, don't have to be like uh can we also order domino <laughs> i also feel like you will eat your own bad cooking yeah oh yeah no it's doubt just, <laughs> yeah it's just like I, I made this it's not that bad right i know it won't i think there's an element of like i made it and i know it won't hurt me right because i saw what went into it even though it tastes like garbage my my college best friend and i used to cook together and he's a great cook. Now. He's like really, really good. Has like worked in kitchens professionally. He makes a lot of different stuff. But when we were in college living together, we would we'd be like, hey, let's cook together. So we'd make something. And then he would always go like two ingredients too far. Or he'd be like, okay, now half a bottle of marinade and some beans. And we're like, what? <laughs> and it would, we would always end up with these giant pans of like nonsense. Like <laughs> a jambalaya amount of ingredients and without any thought to like composition <laughs> and i think least least stereotypically masculine is like that that kind of stuff is like cooking and baking are things i like like to do and take pride in and, and like like contributing to our household and and i try to be very very good about like admitting to being wrong rather than like needing to be right that's like something I, I work really hard at because I think I'm like kind of a snotty know-it-all by nature. <laughs> and what was the, wait, what was the first question? Uh, first question was, what is the best piece of advice that anyone has ever given you? <sighs> That's so good. That's such a good question. It stumps um, a lot of people. It does. Well, there's, I, I, I think bad advice comes a lot more naturally. I, I don't always remember like who told me the right thing to do or whether I like hit upon it. I remember really distinctly right after I moved to New York or right before maybe the year before I moved to New York I was in Atlanta opening for Gary Gullman at a comedy club who's one of my favorite comedians and a guy I've known for a million years I like Gary Gullman a lot gosh he's one of the absolute best and he and I were walking from the club to the hotel or the other way around. I think it was from the club to the hotel after the show was one night. And I was like, you know, this is really nice. I'm like happy to be here working with you. I'm happy to be out on the road a little bit. I feel like finally, like this year, I'm starting to feel like the things that I'm like dreaming of are like a little closer than I had feared they might be. And I was like a year ago, I was like, maybe it's worth putting like a hard cap on what I think my career ceiling is and like going to grad school and having like a, a parallel career, like the, my comedy career, which I take seriously, but don't ever expect to like make a full-time living out of. And my, my other career, which was, I was, 
I taught preschool, but I was like, so you were a teacher, maybe I'll go right. back to grad school and work in like education policy or something like that. That was like what I was thinking. And, and Gary said, are you still thinking about going back to grad school? And I said, no. And he said, good. Like, this is your grad school. Like this is, and, and that has like stuck with me for like years and years in a way that's like, it doesn't have to be comedy, but like the thing you're working hard at is the preparation. Like that's like, you're, you're doing the thing. And, and that was really helpful to consider, like, even outside of a formal structure, I'm like learning a skill and cultivating discipline and making, you know, creating art, but it could be anything. And I, I think that was really valuable to hear. I remember that that was like, it, it wasn't, it like didn't change the course of what I was doing, but it was like really affirmative of the fact that like, oh, this is a path. And I don't, I don't have to like be doing something that has kind of the more traditional markers of like steps towards success. Yep. But like I'm working on the thing that I, that I want to be doing. So I think that was really great advice. And that like, this is, this is your grad school. It doesn't have to be like a program that you pay a hundred thousand dollars and going to debt. For going it. to debt for the rest yeah. of your life for it. Yeah. And, right. And, and, and that was also like, I remember going to my five-year high school reunion and being one year out of college and like teaching and making not very much money and doing comedy and not making very much money and, and feeling like, what, what is it that I'm going to be doing? Like I'm five years out of high school and I don't, I, not that I felt directionless, there were just too many directions. Like I had to have a day job to eat ends meet. I wanted to do comedy. I wanted to be a writer, but I wasn't writing very much who, who am I going to be? And then feeling very impressed by the, the kids, the guy, the grownups now, you know, the, the men and women who I went to high school with, who then had just been like, oh, I immediately did an apprenticeship to be a plumber. And I learned this trade and I got good at it. And that's, that's my living. And that's what I do for a living. And I know that that's my career. And that like, outside of that, I have a, you know, maybe I'm married, maybe I'm single, maybe I bought a house, maybe I have a kid, but like, I was just so impressed by the, the like decisiveness and the like continuity and cultivation of like a, a, a career that the people who like did not go to college with. And I was like, I just remember being like, oh, this thing that I thought was like setting me up for the rest of my life was like, took a lot of time to sink in as, as being useful. But I mean, aren't you glad in retrospect that you stuck with it? Yeah, I mean, I'm totally, I don't have a lot of regrets. I'm not a no regrets person. I think those people will, are terrifying, a no regrets person. <laughs> I do, but I, I think like the way things have turned out, I'm very pleased with, or, and the way things are continuing to develop, I'm, I'm not like done living. Hopefully not for a long time, Josh. Yeah, I hope so. I hope that you enjoyed that very nice podcast with the very nice Josh Gondelman. Make sure you follow Josh on socials at... Josh Gondelman. <laughs> also, check out his podcast, Make My Day, available everywhere you can find podcasts. Josh's memoir uh, slash short story collection, Nice Try, is available everywhere you can find books. And you can also stream his album from last year, Dancing on a Weeknight, on Spotify or Apple Music or whichever streaming platform you use. I believe it's also available on vinyl. Uh, you might have to check with Josh on that. Anyway, uh... Of course, you can also check out the Jesus and Marrow show on Showtime. And Josh is a busy, busy guy. Uh, with all that in mind, I certainly want to thank Josh very much for uh, taking time to be interviewed. 
We're still not out of the woods as far as COVID-19 goes, and small businesses are among the most affected. While it's certainly easy to buy things from places like Amazon, I'm certainly guilty of that. It's also great to keep mom and pop shops in business. So if you're looking to purchase a book or record or anything for that matter, always consider to buy local. Uh, Small business options are good options. You should definitely take use of them. And of course, I'll remind you again to please subscribe, rate, leave a comment. Wherever you're listening to this podcast, it is much appreciated and only helps our mission get out to more and more people. And uh, make sure you follow me on social media. I am on Instagram at DetoxPodGuy and I am on Twitter at TizMikeJoseph. If you have an idea for a theme or a guest or if you yourself want to be on the show, you can reach me via either of those social media platforms or you can or you can email me at DetoxPod at gmail.com. Once again, I am Mike Joseph. This is the Detoxicity Podcast. I wish you continued safety and health for you and yours. Till next time. Peace, y'all. The Detoxicity Podcast is hosted and produced by Mike Joseph. Music provided by Calvin Williams. Logo provided by Jacob Block. I want to thank y'all for listening again. Peace.